when I taste a dish, I can tell you how it's broken down, how to make it. When I think a dish through, I can taste it in my brain, like, oh, it tastes like this. If I add this, it'll taste like this. This texture is, I could put it in my head and sort of gather what it would taste like and how it could work before having to actually use all the ingredients to put it together. I'm Ashley Milne-Tite, and this is The Venture, a branded podcast from Virgin Atlantic and Gimlet Creative about pioneering businesses and the people who made them possible. In this series, we meet innovators, artists, and risk-takers who prove that business is an adventure. And we'll be taking this journey alongside Virgin Atlantic, Richard Branson's transatlantic airline, a company that embodies the entrepreneurial spirit and celebrates challenging the status quo. dining areas. This is usually where the bigger uh, group of six will sit, where we have a nice view of an outside garden. I'm standing in the small dining room at Ennaka Restaurant in West Los Angeles. There's a simple elegance to the room, dark wood floors and cream-colored walls. The only decoration is a row of artfully placed Japanese antique cookie molds, hand-carved out of wooden blocks. It's a Tuesday afternoon and the restaurant's closed today. It's a day for prep and planning. Standing next to me is Chef Nakayama. My name is Nikki Nakayama, and I am one of the chefs at N Naka Restaurant in Los Angeles. One of the chefs. One of the chefs. Nikki isn't just one of the chefs. She's the chef and founder of N Naka, as in her name, Nikki Nakayama. And this humble introduction tells you so much about who Nikki is. She's one of the only female kaiseki chefs in the world. And what is kaiseki? It's a style of Japanese cooking dating back to medieval times. From then until now, it's traditionally been made by men for men. Are you the only female kaiseki chef? I don't really know, but I hope that I'm not. I mean, is is there other kaiseki in LA? There's probably going to be a few people opening up kaiseki restaurants, but from what I've heard, they're going to be opened by men. The origins of kaiseki cuisine come from the formal Japanese tea ceremony, originally enjoyed by elite samurais and other Japanese nobility. Kaiseki adheres to a strict set of rules governing the flavors and textures of each dish. Over time, these rules have changed, but what stayed the same is the emphasis on variety, seasonality, visual appeal, attractive plating, and small serving sizes. In their 13-course meal, N. Naka interprets it this way soup before sashimi, a grilled dish before steamed, a soft, melt-in-your-mouth texture followed by crunchy and crisp, sweet and bright, balanced by savory and subtle. Each course is carefully calibrated to create this balance, and everything is plated with precision. It's like working within a box where you really have to um, create something that fits an idea, but The challenging part is you can't let that idea overpower what's delicious. So it's really, really hard, and I I love that challenge. The challenge is what drives Nikki. In her unassuming way, she's constantly striving to improve and reinvent, straddling the line between tradition and innovation. Cooking is both science and art, but Kaiseki moves beyond that. The food is meant to tell a story. And in a good Kaiseki restaurant, the server will explain that story to you. 
This is food scholar Eric Rath. He's a professor at the University of Kansas, and he specializes in the history of pre-modern Japanese food culture. You might, at the end of your meal, be confronted with very small black soybeans and then be told that's a dessert. And this happened to a friend of mine. And she was quite disappointed after you know, thinking about all the money she was spending on this meal to be served a few beans at the end of it. But then the server said, oh, no, these are very special beans. These are black soybeans that come from Tamba, which is near Kyoto, and they've been simmered for 24 hours, and they're very sweet and plump. And then you hear about that, and you reflect upon the area they came from, their history, and maybe you have a different appreciation for those small, humble soybeans that are sitting on your plate. There's a long historical trend of, of seeing food as something more than just something meant for nutritional purposes. It's creating art with food. True to Kaiseki rules, Nikki creates a new menu every day with a season based on the freshest ingredients she can get her hands on that morning. She grows herbs and vegetables in her front yard. She picks them in the morning and serves them that night in the restaurant. And if you've dined in her restaurant before, Nikki will personally make sure that you will never eat the same thing twice, which is a huge creative undertaking and an expensive one. If you can manage to get a reservation at Ennaka, a meal for two can easily cost you more than $700 if you also choose to get the custom wine or sake selections paired with each course. People are really appreciative of experiences that are really singular, you know, that are not like anything else. This is Besha Rodell. She's the restaurant critic for LA Weekly. There's a $3 taco somewhere that that competes with almost anything that you would want to eat here. And so I think you have to think of it more the way you would think of buying tickets to the opera or something like that, where it is an experience. The meal takes about two and a half, three hours, and it's all very quiet and very careful and very lovely. Here are some dishes on a recent Ennaka menu. Scallops and sturgeon caviar with beet puree, snow pea sauce, and a crispy rice puff. Zucchini blossoms stuffed with blue crab meat and fried in tempura batter, served with a coconut carrot sorbet. And grilled unagi eel with shiitake mushroom, foie gras, and strawberries with a balsamic vinegar and soy sauce glaze. And on the plate, all this food resembles a modern, minimalist sculpture that you can also eat. Nikki places the food with extra-long metal tweezers, making sure one sprout or droplet of sauce is placed just so. Every dish on the 13-course tasting menu is selected by Nikki. And for repeat diners, her team keeps meticulous records of what every guest who has ever dined at Ennaka has had to eat and drink. Before you come, they find out if you're left or right-handed, and they'll set the table accordingly. To Nikki, being meticulous is at the core of hospitality, and it's also part of the challenge. It fuels her creativity. Again, here's food critic Besha Rodell. This is, you know, 100% her vision, and she's done it exactly how she wants to do it. How rare is it for chefs to be able to do that? It's exceedingly rare. I mean, I don't think people have any idea how rare it is. So many things get in the way. The investors have uh, opinions. Your food cost would be untenable if you did the dishes you want to do. The city won't let you put the fryer where you want to have it. 
so much compromise has to happen. You know, a business is a business. It has to be a business plan that would work, and most chefs want to do something that is probably not tenable. But she's been, thankfully, really rewarded for it. And it could have gone the other way. The odds have always been stacked against Nikki. The fact that she's a female head chef in the world of fine dining already makes her a unicorn. On top of that, she's trying to convince Americans to eat an unfamiliar cuisine while charging them top dollar. Not everyone could do it. Then again, not everyone is Nikki. No one expects anything from someone like me, especially in my younger years. It's just, I'm not a very aggressive person. They don't, you know, rock the boat for lack of a better word. But uh, my will is strong. So it's like, okay, I, I won't argue with you about your ideas, but I know how I'm going to do it my way someday. After the break, it's Nikki's will against the skeptics. You're listening to The Venture, brought to you by Virgin Atlantic. My name's Jeremy Brown. I'm the Senior Manager for Customer Experience Design at Virgin Atlantic. Like Nikki and her team, Virgin Atlantic understands that meticulous attention to customer experience makes all the difference. For Jeremy, the subtle, unassuming touches deliver the best results. We have lighting installations that are programmed to actually mimic real time. So, you know, over the course of a flight to JFK from London, for example, we can actually have the sun rising or setting as it would naturally do in the destination. It's almost one of those elements that our customers don't necessarily recognize is happening. But hopefully, as any customer gets off board one of our flights, they feel so much fresher, far less jet lagged than perhaps they would do coming off a, an older, more traditional aircraft. Virgin Atlantic, where designing customer experience is all in the details. To learn more, go to virginatlantic.com slash the venture. Welcome back. Nikki grew up in Southern California. Her parents are first-generation immigrants from Japan. They ran a seafood warehouse, and Nikki had always liked cooking, but never considered it as a career. When she graduated high school, she wasn't sure what to do with her life. She loved music and thought about a future in the music industry, but she didn't know how to make that happen. So she decided to go to Japan for a year, where she spent some time with relatives, working at their inn in the countryside. So I was just helping them out for about three months, and um, I basically helped out in the kitchen. I remember them sending me upstairs, go get some rice for dinner. And I was running upstairs and had my little bucket and I opened it up and I was like, I heard angels singing like choir, like <laughs> And it was because it was glowing, like it was just so beautiful. Whereas like the rice that I grew up eating in the States when you open the rice cooker, it's just kind of like dry and flat. But this is a whole new level of rice. My mom came to Japan. Uh, while I was there and she was like, what are you going to do with your life? And she was worried and she was like, have you, maybe you could go to culinary school here. I sort of just like, uh, didn't really take her seriously. After her mum's visit, Nikki realized something about herself. I really enjoyed kitchen work. I liked the meticulous aspects of trying to make everything look the same. And I like how it's somewhat meditative and Plus, I got to eat a lot of really great food. So I thought, maybe I could do this for a living. 
When she came back to California, she announced her plans to go to culinary school. So I told my mom that I'm seriously going to go into cooking, and then she's, she's like, what? Why would you go into cooking? Even I was like, what are you talking about? It was your suggestions. And it's like, she suggests things, and then once you take her up on it, she like wants to talk you out of it. And it's like, you're so, she's like, you're too short to do cooking. Your body can't handle it. You're too small. And I was like, are you kidding me? I'll be fine. Her family was skeptical, but Nikki did it anyway. After culinary school, she decided to head back to Japan, back to the inn where she'd encountered that magical rice. She wanted to learn how to make it herself. But that's if they would teach her. I think everything in Japan is male domain. I mean, Japanese cuisine itself, it's just not very welcoming of women. It's all men. I mean, once in a while you'll go to a country house in the middle of nowhere, and then yes, the person cooking inside is an old Japanese lady. But those aren't the restaurants, even though the food is probably more amazing than anywhere else in the city. Those aren't the chefs that get celebrated. In Kaiseki, the cooking techniques and recipes are traditionally handed down informally, from mentors to trainees, or from fathers to sons. They always view women as the one that sort of, like, assists them versus being a main character. So I went there knowing that, um, for the most part, I'd probably just be assisting, like, plating or assisting with some prep. But maybe most of it washing dishes. And you were there for how long? Three years. That's a long... To me, that sounds like a really long time to be plating and washing dishes. It is. But uh, in Japan, a lot of the things you learn is you learn through taste on your own. And you learn through watching. They just thought I was there. I was kind of like learning. And, you know, they didn't really think too deeply about it. But she was thinking deeply about it about the food, how it tasted, how it was assembled, how it sat on the plate. It was an intimidating environment to be in, and she was like a spy, secretly soaking up everything she could. Did you ask questions? No, not really. Why? It's it's not something that you feel very comfortable to ask, but any time I had time to go to the bookstore, I'd just pick up another book and then just kind of study it the whole time. And then if I did really have questions, I could always ask my aunt. The three years passed, and many dishes later, Nikki came back to California. She didn't have a master plan, but in the meantime, she set up a catering office in her parents' seafood warehouse. My mom was like, oh, you know, you can't just hang out in this little office forever. You need to think about something that you want to do. Maybe, maybe open a restaurant? I was like, no, I'm not ready to open a restaurant. That's crazy. Then after I thought about it, I was like, I think she's right. I was like, okay, maybe I'll open a restaurant. My mom was like, are you crazy? (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of weariness and like, are you sure you can do this? And we can't support you if you can't. And, you know, you get one chance to prove yourself. And it was like, I'm going to do it. Nikki opened a sushi restaurant, Azami Sushi Cafe, on the edge of the trendy strip of Melrose Avenue. And it got a lot of attention, not just for its food. And that first restaurant was famous for having an all-female staff. You know what, that's the funny thing is, it just sort of happened that way because um, 
my cousin and I were working it. We were the only chefs there. So it felt like it was all female, but it was just the two of us. From the outside, Azami Sushi Cafe was popular, and it stayed popular year after year. It was well-reviewed and had lots of regular customers. For most chefs, this would be the end of the story, the happily ever after. But something wasn't right for Nikki. She wasn't happy making sushi night after night. It didn't feel exciting or challenging. I thought to myself, if I'm going to spend 14 hours a day doing this work, I really want to make it meaningful for me. Like, it has to mean something to me. So she came up with an idea. What if she snuck some kaiseki items onto the menu? Dishes like the ones she'd studied during her time in Japan. She thought, why not try it out? It was a three, five, and seven courses, I think. That was like secretly hiding somewhere on the menu. And then I was like, no one's going to order it. You know, people are here for sushi. But people did want it, and it sparked something for Nikki, creating these new menu items. She realized that just waiting for people to order the occasional kaiseki dish wasn't enough for her. And so she decided to take a risk, to close her successful sushi restaurant in pursuit of the kaiseki dream, to build a new restaurant from scratch, and to cook the dishes she wanted to make. It felt like I just had this weird leap of faith. Like, I knew it was going to be okay. I didn't know how long it was going to take, but I knew that I would be okay. That's a lot of confidence it takes to to do what you did. I mean, where do you think that comes from? I feel like I call it blind faith. (laughs) Between her savings and selling the restaurant, she had enough money to finance the project on her own. She put money down on a little building on the corner of a residential neighbourhood in Culver City across town. An unusual location, perhaps, but she had a vision. Two and a half years later, after permitting, remodeling, waiting, and dreaming up the recipes, she opened Ennaka in the spring of 2011. We served um, maybe 10 people a night, 12 people a night. While most people might get discouraged by the lack of customers, Nikki found it energizing. There were days where we didn't have reservations, so we just closed. But then I'd come in and do experimenting or just, you know. It was like, if we're not busy, it's because the menu's not good enough. And it's just a sign to, like, be creative, try harder, do different things. Slowly and steadily, she built up a clientele. Word spread around. She got some favorable restaurant reviews, more reservations. Nikki was happy and busy and growing her business. And in her personal life, Nikki started dating a woman named Carol. Carol was also Japanese-American and also a chef. Just a few months into the relationship, Nikki's sous chef failed to show up one day. And so Carol volunteered to help. Here's Carol. I was very intimidated, but I felt like, well, I know the basics, you know, so I'm sure even just having somebody who can do some of the basic menial tasks in the kitchen at this point, like, would be helpful than some random stranger just coming in. But it was serendipity. Again, Carol. For me, it was like the luckiest opportunity ever. Until I realized it was my lucky opportunity. (laughs) Because I was really nervous about her coming into the kitchen. I was like, oh no, she's gonna see what a mess I am. Nikki and Carol have worked side by side ever since. Carol is Nikki's sous chef. They got married in 2015. 
since Carol's joined us, she contributes so much to what we do, and I, I totally think that our success is, um, of course, due to her involvement. So I can't take all the, the uh, glory anymore. <laughs> so, and I think we're like lucky in that both of us are fairly mild tempered. Except sometimes I do lose it in the kitchen when things aren't going right. But luckily, I know not to lose it on her. <laughs> we have our moments. It's more like embarrassing to get frustrated with each other and know that the rest of the staff is aware that we're frustrated with each other. So it's kind of like if we were alone, we'd probably hash it out a lot more. But knowing that there's this whole crew, you know, staff surrounding us, watching us, and feeling our mood is definitely tames our. Our behavior. Our behavior. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, we're getting a delivery now. I'm standing outside and Naka with Nikki when a truck pulls up full of fish. There's like so many things going on. She's already prepping for tomorrow's service. There's so much to do, so much to plan, and Nikki wouldn't have it any other way. I want to do this forever. I don't want to expand. I don't want to get bigger. I'm happy here, and I think I feel this way because there's still so much more to do in terms of what we're doing. Like, just because it's、um, kaiseki doesn't mean that we can't be more creative in so many ways. I have this constant feeling where this is good, but there's always more room to grow, more room to improve. There were people who doubted her, underestimated her along the way. Even her own mom repeatedly warned Nikki about the pitfalls and challenges of the industry, but she eventually came around. My mom is like so proud of me. It's embarrassing. It's like, mom, don't please, don't introduce me to your friends, please. <laughs> It's really hilarious. But I'm glad that she feels proud of my success, and it's it's very、um, it's kind of changed the whole dynamics. And Nikki's singular vision, her commitment to her creative ideas, is what keeps people coming back to the restaurant again and again. People who are willing to make dining reservations three months in advance and shell out hundreds of dollars to eat her food. Again, here's LA Weekly restaurant critic Besha Rodell. There are so many market forces at play, and very few chefs have the the money or the ability to. Just think up exactly what they want to do and do it without compromise, and that is absolutely the case for her. It was a gamble that a business like this could ever work, but it has. Everything about Nikki, her background, her experience, her humility that hides an uncompromising will—they all make her the pioneering chef she is today. Well, even just opening Ennaka, I feel like I've altered the rules in this game. Just. I didn't have to make a big statement like, "Oh, I'm a woman doing this man's cuisine." It's just, I'm just doing it. You know, just, you just make the opportunities for yourself, or you find ways to go roundabout. And sometimes that roundabout way is a lot more interesting, a lot more educational than the traditional ways or the ways that people usually follow.
The Venture is a co-production of Virgin Atlantic, Gimlet Creative, and Filio and & Partners. This episode was produced by Nicole Wong, Rachel Ward, Grant Irving, and Julia Botero, with help from Francis Harlow, Caitlin Baguki, Abby Ruzika, and Caitlin Delena. This episode was mixed and scored by Zach Schmidt. Production assistance from Tom Cody and Gideon Brower. Our editor is Wendy Dore, and our creative director is Nazanin Rafsanjani. Our theme song was composed by Bobby Lord. Special thanks to Dan Allen from Farmscape, Sarah Rathbone from Dr. Dish LA, Jeffrey Undiato, and Nancy Singleton Hachisu. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe to The Venture on Apple Podcasts or whichever app you use to listen. And leave us a review. It really helps people discover our show. To learn more, go to virginatlantic.com slash theventure. Next time on The Venture, before the Kardashians, before Survivor, there was the real world. No one quite understood what we wanted. I was like, I remember Heather B. She goes, you're, go- you're going to give me a free place to live and you're going to film everything? Is this a porno? The story of the television show and the team behind it that changed the entertainment world forever. That's next time on The Venture. I'm Ashley Milne-Tite. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.